Well, what a, what a joy this is for me, and um, I just have to tell you, when I graduated from seminary, I became Mr. Epistle in the New Testament. So I began by teaching Colossians verse by verse, and then I took a wild step of faith and did Philippians. <laughs> and after preaching through numerous New Testament books, I wanted to go study under R.C. Sproul and to be further taught by him. And so in class, R.C. detected something in me that I didn't realize was happening, that I was very top-heavy in the New Testament. So we had to preach to one another in class, and Dr. Sproul would always sit in the very back in a chair, leaning back against the back wall and just rock that chair while you're preaching, and he's the only person in the room that you see. And so to get, to get me out of my comfort zone, he assigned me an Old Testament passage. He assigned me from the book of Daniel. He assigned me Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar's feast. And so I'm in class preaching and very consciously aware that R.C. Sproul is sitting there and grading me. And I came to that part where the handwriting on the wall, many, many tickle Eupharson. And as soon as I did that, he bolted out of his chair and came stomping up the front row in front of the whole class. And so I was just ready to, to evaporate uh, <laughs> at that moment into a thin mist. And he said, Lawson, who told you to do this when you said many, many tickle Eupharson? I said, well, Dr. Sproul, I, I don't know. It just seemed to be something to do. <laughs> so he turned around to the whole class and said, I want every one of you to start doing what Lawson just did. <laughs> and he, he said, you speak not just with your mouth, you speak with your gestures, you speak with your whole body, nonverbal communication as well as verbal. And so that launched me on a whole new trajectory, Joseph, of preaching from the Old Testament, and it has made me a better preacher of the New Testament by preaching the Old Testament, because I was so locked in on the Apostle Paul, and his letters, he really sounds like a, a lawyer, uh, presenting his case and arguing his case and rebutting um, heretical statements. But by preaching from the Old Testament, especially Hebrew uh, wisdom, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Job, I actually preached verse by verse through Job. We were in the Great Tribulation, uh, <laughs> by the way. Um, it made me a much more effective preacher of the Word of God to learn how to use figures of speech and parallelism and to speak not just like a lawyer, but to speak like a poet and to paint pictures on the canvas of people's minds. And that all comes from the Old Testament. And I, I said to Joseph before uh, the service started this morning, we were in the elders' prayer meeting, I said it was J.C. Ryle who said, it takes a whole Bible to produce a whole Christian. And I said to Joseph, I tell my students, in fact, I, I teach in this very class for the Master's Seminary. I tell them it takes preaching a whole Bible to make a whole preacher, that if you only preach certain segments, let's say the New Testament, you're really never going to be developed uh, to the full extent, unless you're John MacArthur, <laughs> uh, but the rest of us mere pedestrians in the ministry, <laughs> we need everything, we need every oar in the water, we, we need everything going for us, so I just have loved being seated here and seeing a study of the Old Testament, and I actually didn't even know that that's the subtitle for Sojourners, a study of the Old Testament, so I'm so glad that I chose Ezra so that uh, I wouldn't uh, crash the party with the New Testament. <laughs> so, having said all of that, and what a joy it is to be here and be able to even spend a little bit of time with Joseph as we've talked. I want you to take God's Word and turn with me to the book of Ezra, 
And I know for this class, I don't have to give you time to find the book of Ezra. <laughs> I've preached in a few places where we, we have some silent prayer to allow people to find an Old Testament book. <laughs> yeah, turn to the table of contents and then find the page number. So we're going to be in Ezra chapter 7 today, Ezra chapter 7. And I want to begin by just reading a couple of verses, and then we're going to plunge into this. And I want to begin with verse 6, Ezra chapter 7, and verse 6. And if you're taking notes, the title of this is A Word-Centered Life, or A Word-Ordered Life. Beginning in verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylon. So he's been in Babylon and he now geographically goes, makes the ascent up to Jerusalem. And he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Now verse 9. For on the first day of the first month, he, referring to Ezra, began to go up from Babylon, and on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. So a four-month travel, because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra set his heart, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Come to the end of the chapter, verse 28, the second half of verse 28. This is Ezra speaking first person. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. Ezra was a seminal figure in the Old Testament. He was the preacher and the leader of one of the greatest revivals that has ever taken place in redemptive history. He was the preacher at the revival of the Watergate in Nehemiah chapter 8 when he stood up and the people were crying out, bring the book, bring the book. And they knew that there was one man who knew the book better than anyone else in Israel. It's Ezra. And so they called for Ezra to bring the word of God. And Ezra brought the word of God, and the spirit of God moved and descended in such a way that the people were crushed in their heart, and then they were lifted up, and it was a crowd of 42,000 people, many commentators have, have speculated. It was an enormous gathering of people. And God used Ezra as his instrument to usher in this extraordinary revival that crushed the hearts of the people but lifted them up to be edified. Oh, he's a seminal figure. In fact, many believe that he wrote four books in the Old Testament, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And some believe that he's even the, the author of the anonymous psalm, Psalm 119, which is all about the Word of God. And if you were to ask me who wrote it, and we don't know, it's kind of like the book of Hebrews, but uh, I personally think it's Ezra. 176 verses, 22 stanzas, eight verses each, and it is all about the Word of God. I mean, I mean, Ezra was like what Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, why the man is a walking Bible. Prick him anywhere and he bleeds bibline. And so Ezra is a, a significant person. And he was also a scribe, which means he, was a, he, he had devoted himself to the study of the law of God. He's like a, a lawyer, except it's focused upon the Word of God to know its parts, to know its meaning, to know its nuances, to understand how it all fits together. 
I mean, he, he is the resident expert on the law. And he's also a priest as well. And so the scribe really represents, almost like a prophet, represents God before the people, and the priest represents the people before God. This is an extraordinary man. Now, I want to set him in a, in a context. You've been studying the book of Daniel, and that takes place during the Babylonian captivity as Israel has been extracted out of their land and taken hostage and captive to, to, to Babylon, where they are there for 70 years. And when that time is fulfilled, there will be three waves, um, movements of of. Israelites who returned back to Jerusalem and who come back to the promised land. And the first was under a man named Zerubbabel. And you can read about him in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. And the chapter that I've read here starts the second wave, which was 80 years later. And so there's a a gap even from the first part to the second part of the book of Ezra of of 80 years, and Zerubbabel is used by God to begin to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians when they came and, and, and captured the, the, the Jews. And so he begins to rebuild the temple, a much smaller version of it, and that building project will become somewhat slowed down. But what they need, they need more than a building project. They need a man of God to be in that area who can preach the Word of God, and who can teach the Word of God. And so Ezra leads the second wave to come back from Babylon to the promised land. And then, 13 years later, is the third wave of of Israelites who will be released from Babylon and who will come back to Jerusalem. And it will be at that time, it will be led by Nehemiah, And Nehemiah will rebuild the wall around Jerusalem to provide protection for the people. And it was done in an amazing amount of time. It was done in 52 days. And once that's completed, the people realize we need the word of God to be preached to us. And so they call upon Ezra. He has spent his entire life studying the Word of God, having no idea he would ever be put in front of 42,000 people to to preach the Word of God for six hours. But he was ready. He was ready. And it reminds me of how God works through key individuals throughout history. There is a well-known Scottish historian named Thomas Carlyle who has who came in the 19th century, came up with the theory of history that was known, is known as the great man theory of history, that, that history swings on certain individuals, whether it's a Caesar or a Churchill or a Napoleon. And he even understood that even church history swings that way. And, and he said the history of the world is but the biography of great men. That's quite a statement. Another historian has has said this, every golden era in human history proceeds from the devotion and righteous passion of some single individual, a strong man. And he goes on to say, there are no bona fide mass movements. It just looks that way. At the center of the column, there is always one man who knows his God and knows where he is going, and the mass follow. Ezra was such a man. He was the single individual that the hand of God rested strongly upon him, and he became the pivotal figure as Israel returns now from Babylon back to the promised land, and he is the seminal figure who will minister the word of God and bring about this great revival. Now, I want you to look at verse 9 again, Ezra 7, verse 9. He came to Jerusalem 
because the good hand of his God was upon him. That's a metaphorical expression. God doesn't have a hand. He doesn't have a physical hand. God is spirit. And for this to say that the hand of God was upon him does not mean that there, that there is an actual hand that presses down. What it signifies is the extraordinary measure of grace that has been poured out upon Ezra, serving grace, strengthening grace. And with that wisdom from God and power and strength and convictions to be the leader that God must make him to be. And without God's hand upon him, he could have never been used to do all that he accomplished. And so we need to ask the question, why? Why was the good hand of God upon him? And from one perspective, the answer is the sovereignty of God. God will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. He'll have compassion upon whom he will have compassion. And God is always previous but from a human perspective, why was the hand of God upon him? Why would the hand of God be upon your life in a very special, empowering way? Well, I want you to look at the first word of the next verse. Verse 10 begins with the word for. It's a Hebrew word that could be translated because, and it introduces an explanation. It's interesting. There are more verses written by the Apostle Paul in Greek that begin with the word F-O-R than any other word, and it introduces an explanation of the previous sentence. That's what Ezra is doing here as he is explaining his own life, that the good hand of God was upon him to sustain him and enable him and empower him to perform the task to which he was called. Verse 10 is the explanation. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in, in Israel. This is the explanation of why he was such a powerful tool in the hand of God. It's because the powerful hand of God rested upon him because he had, he had saturated his life with the word of God. He studied it. He practiced it. He taught it. That's why the good hand of God was upon him. And here we learn a life lesson. God will honor the man who honors his word. Why Isaiah? Why Jeremiah? Why Daniel? Why Amos? God will honor the man who honors his word. Why John the Baptist? Why Peter? Why Paul? Why John? Why Wycliffe? Why Luther? Why Calvin? Why Knox? Why Tyndale? Why Edwards? Why Whitfield? Why Spurgeon? Why Lloyd-Jones? Why Sproul? Why MacArthur? God will honor the man who honors his word. And that was, that was Daniel, that was Ezra. Now, I want to draw to your attention, just as we look at verse 10, four truths about Ezra. Four truths about Ezra. Would to God they would be true of my life. Would to God they would be true of your life. And here's the first. He had a resolute heart. Notice how verse 10 begins. For Ezra had set his heart. This literally means to, to be determined, to, to, to be unwavering, to be firmly committed 
to a course of action, to be established, to be fixed in, in the pursuit of something. It's used in the book of Proverbs to, to represent how God established the heavens. Ezra had established his heart. It was as though concrete had been poured into his heart and into his soul. And he was not going to be like a, a, a reed waving in, in, in the wind. But he was anchored in his heart to pursue and a predetermined purpose. So th- this wasn't something that was here today and gone tomorrow. When it says he had set his heart in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, I know that your teachers have brought this out to you. It just represents the whole inner person. When we say heart, we normally refer to it as emotions. But in the Hebrew mindset, it referred to all that a person is on the inside, the, the totality of their, uh, their innermost being. It, re- it refers to their mind. It refers to their affections and their desires. And it also refers to their will and the, the, the choices that they make. And so what this is saying is that Ezra had set his heart. I think of the missionary Jim Elliot, who once said, wherever you are, be all there. Don't have your body in one place and be daydreaming about some other place. Be all in. And Ezra was all in with the word of God here. He had set his heart. So there's, there's nothing superficial or shallow here about, about Ezra. God uses men and God uses women who have set their heart. No matter what circumstances are going on in their life. No matter how they're feeling at the moment. They are resolute. And one such man from church history was Jonathan Edwards. As you're aware, no doubt, when he was 18 and 19 years old, he had just been converted at age 17. And he was called to be an interim pastor in downtown New York City at age 18. And he was there during his 18th and 19th year, and he wanted the good hand of the Lord upon him. So he wrote 70 resolutions over the course of a year and a half. And the first four of those resolutions... He was resolved to live for the glory of God. And the last 66 resolutions are how he would live for the glory of God. Resolution number one, resolved that I will do whatever I think to be most to God's glory. That was always the interpretive key for any decision in his life. What will most glorify God? And I am resolved to follow that path. Second resolution, if I ever fall short and grow dull, to repent of all I can remember. Number four, resolve never to do any manner of thing but what tends to the glory of God. Verse, uh, number six, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. That was Jonathan Edwards. It was by no happenstance that Jonathan Edwards became Jonathan Edwards. Arguably, the most prolific figure that's ever been produced on American soil. The greatest author, the greatest theologian, who preached the greatest sermon, all in one package, Jonathan Edwards. And what was the key? When he was 18 years old, he set his heart to pursue the glory of God. That's exactly where Ezra was. That's where I need to be. That's where you need to be. Not simply pursuing the glory of God when circumstances are favorable. But even when they're unfavorable, 
That's number one. He had a resolute heart. I pray that God will give you a resolute heart. You are what you are in your heart. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he, Solomon writes. Now, second, with this resolute heart is a diligent mind. Notice, as we continue to read, for Ezra had set his heart, notice, to study the law of the Lord. And of course here, there's, there, there's, a, there's an order here. First, you study it. Then you live it. Then you minister it to others. And so... To study. The word means to search out a matter, to investigate. Almost like when uh, the spies were sent into the land and Joshua and Caleb spied out the land and investigated the land. Even so, Ezra now is spying out the word of God and he's investigating the word of God and digging down into the, the scriptures he became an, an avid student and we can just see of scripture. So we can just see Ezra with scrolls rolled out in, in front of him and digging into the text and investigating its words, probing its truths, surveying the flow of thought, analyzing its doctrines, comparing the books, grasping its meaning, not content to just skim over the surface or to hydroplane over the surface of Scripture. He, he was determined not to be a, a snorkeler up here on the surface. He was a deep sea diver going down. The pearls aren't floating on the top. They're down at the bottom. And he's plunging into the law of God and mastering the Word of God and being mastered by the Word of God. That's what Paul instructed Timothy when he said in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, be diligent. That, that, that word means to be zealous, uh, to be eager. Be, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, to, to be tested and found to be approved as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Oh, you'll have to be a workman. Dig down into the text. Spend time. Let that truth marinate inside of you and meditate upon it. And it almost unintentionally becomes memorized because you've just focused on it so much. It does not need to be a shame, indicating... Timothy, you will be ashamed one day when the great author of Scripture himself judges your work, accurately handling the word of truth. This underscores the necessity that we all have to be Bereans, to examine these things to see if they're so. First Peter 2, verse 2, like newborn babes long for the sincere milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. This hunger, this thirst, this insatiable appetite for the Word of God. And this is directed not to the preachers or the elders, it's directed to the whole body of Christ. Colossians 3 verse 16, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Richly dwell within, it means to, for the Word of God to come into your life in such a way that it's not an overnight guest, but that it actually moves in and now lives inside of you. Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This is why the good hand of God was upon him. Because he had his hand on the word of God. So read your Bible like a miner digging for gold, like a hungry soul devouring food, like a thirsty soul coming to an oasis, like an infirm soul 
taking the needed medicine to be strong. Master it, memorize it, meditate upon it, minister it. So what can we say about Ezra? He had a resolute heart. He had a diligent mind. He had a mind that was being renewed like Romans 12 verse 2 talks about. You you need to understand this about the Christian life. there's There's a progression. Everything starts with the mind. The emotions are the response to what your mind knows. And then the will is simply the handmaiden of your desires. Your will is the caboose on the train. It'll just follow whatever your desires are, and your desires are being affected by what you know to be true with your mind. And so Ezra has the order correct here. Before his will will be activated and he will practice the law, he first must have studied and, and know the law. So third, we've talked about a resolute heart. We've talked about um, a diligent mind. And now third, an obedient will. Ezra must do more than love the truth. He must do more than learn the truth. Ezra must now live the truth. So he says, and to practice it. And the word and there is, is, is very important. It, it's not or, it's and, meaning there's an inseparable connection here between his study of the word and his practice of the word. I mean, these are like links in a chain that are just welded together. There, there's, no, there's no break here. And so, and to practice it, he must put into practice what he has studied. This verb, practice, practice it, pictures the idea of expenditure of energy in the accomplishment of a project. This same word is used in Genesis 6 of Noah's strenuous efforts in building the ark. And we read that he is to, God says, make for yourself an ark. Same word for practice here. And so just like Noah was nailing each board into place, so Ezra is nailing each passage of Scripture into his heart and into his spiritual life. The same verb is is used for when Jacob built a house in Genesis 33. And Ezra is building a life by putting into practice This which he has studied, the word is used when the workers were constructing the Ark of the Covenant and the skill that was involved in building the Ark of the Covenant. Even so, Ezra, in like manner, is building a skilled practice of the Word of God. We we need to be reminded that knowledge is never an end in itself. That knowledge is only the means to the greater end. The end is not information. More knowledge by itself. The end is transformation, sanctification, even regeneration. That's the purpose of the acquired knowledge. And the more knowledge that is learned does reveal the will of God. The more we know of the Word of God, the more we know of the will of God and what is pleasing to God and how we can glorify Him. A.W. Tozier wrote, theological truth is useless until it is obeyed. The purpose behind all doctrine is to secure moral action. 
when I was in seminary and studying under R.C. Sproul, I had another professor who taught a class right before Dr. Sproul's class. It was on Christian worldview. And I remember him saying to, it, to us, men, I'm going to come hear you preach one time. And I'm going to sit right here on the front row. And halfway into your sermon, I'm going to hold up a sign. And you're going to be the only one who can read it. And it's just going to have two words on it. So what? <laughs> so what does this have to do with Monday morning? What does this have to do with Saturday night? What does this have to do with anything in my life? Or is it just more knowledge? To this day, I've, I've got three sons and a daughter, and if I see them on Saturday night, they'll say to me, Dad, do you have the so what in the sermon? Because there has to be the application of the truth. Indicatives have to lead to imperatives. Or it's a bridge that doesn't reach the other side. There has to be a call to action. And to implement what is being learned and what is, what is being taught. And that's what Tozer is getting at. That's what the whole Bible gets at. I mean, Ephesians, the first three chapters are doctrine. The last three chapters are duty. How to live this out on a daily basis. George Mueller, the, the great... Uh, man of faith who had the orphanage there in Bristol in England in the 19th century, he warned, quote, the word can be studied but not obeyed, just as water can run through a pipe and not be absorbed. We've got to absorb it in such a way that it, it transforms us. There's an old adage, to know and not to do is not to know at all. And so Ezra, he put it into practice. Are you putting into practice what you're learning under the teaching and preaching of the Word of God? You're in a very enviable position here at Grace Community Church. I, I've named my only daughter Grace. <laughs> and I named my last son John. Because of my great love for Grace Community Church and John MacArthur. The church is a treasure to me. John MacArthur is a treasure to me. You live in a very special place in all the world. But with all your acquired knowledge... It's got to be put into practice. It's got to revolutionize and revive your life. Or it's no good. And the problem with the church in Corinth is they had the best preachers and teachers. and They had a lot of knowledge. And Paul had to say, but if you don't have love, it doesn't amount to hill of beans. Well, I need to give you one last, this last heading as we think about Ezra, and I'm so happy to say I have no idea when I'm supposed to stop, and I have no idea, I have no idea what time it is, and so I'm just living the dream <laughs> right now. <laughs> I don't have people doing this to me. <laughs> I don't have people flicking the lights. I don't have someone on the organ coming in underneath me to... Signal me when to land the plane, you know. So I'm just up here having a good time. <laughs> so here's the last heading on Ezra. We love this man, Ezra. We want to be like Ezra. You need to be discipled by Ezra. You need him as an influence in your life. Remember, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what discipleship is. There's somebody out ahead of you who's more mature, who's better well-grounded, who's living it out, 
He's out ahead of you, she's out ahead of you, and you're behind them, and they are discipling you. And you can be discipled by people who are alive, and you can also be discipled by people who are not alive. John Piper has said, my best friends are dead men. (laughs) You need some dead men (laughs) that are influencing and shaping you. And Ezra is one of them. You, you, you need to read the book of Ezra. You need to read the book of Nehemiah. And reintroduce yourself to, the, to, this, to this man, Ezra. But here's the last heading. A teaching ministry. See, here's the deal. If truth flows into you, but it doesn't flow through you and out of you into others, you become a stagnant swamp. Water is flowing in, but it never goes anywhere. And in a swamp, there are a lot of scary creatures that live in a swamp. (laughs) You don't want your spiritual life to be like a swamp. And you don't want your spiritual life to be like a desert either, where there is no input, no water flowing into your life. You're just in a desert. What you want is for your life to be like a pipe or like a mighty flowing river, where there is truth that is flowing into you as you study the Word of God and as you practice it, but that water has got to keep on flowing, and it needs to flow out of you into your children, your grandchildren, into your neighbors, into others in the body of Christ, into people that don't know the Lord. You cannot hoard the truth. And so that's what we see here with Ezra. What he had studied and what he has practiced, he now teaches others. Don't keep the faith, share it. So it concludes, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. The word teach here means to give instruction, to train others. And it also has some ramifications of the idea of goading and prodding. So it's not just teaching per se, but as you teach the truth, you're urging and encouraging and exhorting, maybe even admonishing and warning as you pass on the truth. It's not just a a sterile clinical teaching ministry. There's got to be some prodding. And some, just like a coach with a, with a team, you've got to do more than put X's and O's on the chalkboard. You, you, you've got to say to the team, I want you to knock this door down and storm the field and win the game. And that's the kind of teaching ministry that Ezra had, and it shows up at the revival at the Watergate in Nehemiah chapter 8. So to teach his statutes and ordinances, and so... As we pass on the truth to others, there has to be exhortation and some urging, even some pleading, some summoning, some correcting as we pass on the truth. And I also want to draw to your attention statutes and ordinances, and earlier in the verse, he speaks of the law. I think what's intended to be conveyed here in this verse is really the comprehensiveness of his teaching ministry, the full counsel of God. He's putting his arms around all of the revealed word of God and passing it on to others. So this man, Ezra, He simply stood between the Word of God and the people of God. And he's just the middleman. And what God is building into his life, he's now passing on to others. So I don't know how 
what your outlet is. Most of you probably won't stand behind a lectern like this and teach or preach others. Some of you will, and some of you do a great job. For others of you, it'll take place in other venues and in other settings. It may be one-on-one. It may be, as I said earlier, with grandchildren, with your own children, with a spouse, with in-laws, a next-door neighbor, someone at work. After a church service and fellowshipping in the plaza, you're just needing to build the word of God into the lives of others. And what just flashes in my mind, I was reading that Spurgeon quote about John Bunyan. I looked it up this week, and I I didn't read the whole quote for you where Spurgeon says of Bunyan, the man's a walking Bible, prick him anywhere and he bleeds bibline. But in the larger context of that quote, Spurgeon says of Bunyan, to read anything of Bunyan is like reading the Bible. I mean, it's just so biblical. His very language is biblical. His his analogies are biblical. His figures of speech are drawn from the wells of of Scripture. And Spurgeon says that Bunyan couldn't even talk without the Bible spewing forth from his, his mouth. Also, just am thinking of that great John Owen quote, who was England's Calvin. Oliver Cromwell sets um, John Owen to be over all of Oxford in the glory days of, of Oxford, at the height of its theological fidelity and purity. And one day, John Owen is walking in London to go hear John Bunyan preach. Bunyan's, by the way, buried in uh, Bunhill Fields in London. He was a, a, a Puritan who had been put... He, he, he was never in the, ch- in the uh, Church of England, so he, he could never have been in the great ejection where he's put out of the Church of England, but nevertheless, he's buried with all the Puritans. He's buried with John Owen. He's buried with Isaac Watts. And Bunyan basically never went to school. He was a tinkerer, which means people would bring him their pots and pans that had a dent in it, and he'd pull out a hammer and a piece of cloth and just beat it back smooth. That's all he knew to do. And then God called him to preach. So all he had was the Bible. I mean, he never heard of Aristotle, Plato. So, it was said that Charles II asked John Owen, who was the king of England at the time, we just saw Charles III coronate the coronation. Uh, 1660, um, Charles II is brought back from France when they restored the monarchy. And so, Charles II says to John Owen, why are you going to listen to this tinker from Bedford? And John Owen very humbly said, I would give up all of my learning and all of my theological prowess if I could only preach like the tinker from Bedford. You see, John Bunyan had learned, and John Owen as well, as far as that goes, had learned how to put into practice the Word of God that they had studied. Well, I need to wrap this up. I will just simply end with this. Ezra had no idea when he leaves the second wave to come back to Jerusalem to set up a teaching ministry. He had no idea what the future held for him. He had no idea that 13 years later there would be a crowd of 42,000 people who would be standing at the water gate and would be chanting, bring the book, bring the book, bring the book. And for 13 years, and even previous to that while he was in Babylon, he had been faithful. 
He had buried himself in the word of God. And as Churchill said, when he became prime minister of England during World War II, at the late age of like 59, he said, all of my life has been but a preparation for this one moment in time. Ezra could have said the same, that all of my life has been but a preparation for this moment in Nehemiah chapter 8 and the revival at the water gate. So here's the so what for you. Who knows what your future holds? Who knows what are the foreordained good works that God has already prepared for you before the foundation of the world? Will you be faithful today to be in the word of God, to know the truth, saturate yourself with the truth, live it, put it into practice, begin to distribute it to others? When, when I was in seminary, I didn't have a... In fact, I went to a bookstore and bought my own pulpit. It, smaller than this, where it had a little linchpin and I could disassemble it and put it in the back seat of my white Volkswagen bug. And I'm just driving around Dallas, Texas, looking for some place to preach. <laughs> Who is to know, you know, that one day I'd ever be standing here? I've got to be faithful in little, and God will give me authority over much. Will you be faithful? Right now, when no one's watching and no one's looking. Because who knows, but 13 years from now, what God has already planned for you. Will you be ready? Will you be well taught? Will you live it? And will you begin to teach it to others? Who is to say that God may use you in an extraordinary way, because the good hand of your God is upon you. So I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Thank you so much for letting me come to your small group Bible study <laughs> here. I think Joseph was kind of luring me in on that one. It's been wonderful to be with you, and I look forward to the next opportunity that we would have together. Let us pray. Father, make us like this man Ezra, the strengths that we see in him. He had weaknesses, but he had strengths. And I guess the one thing that I would pray for us is that we would set our heart to pursue your will and that we will not look to the left nor to the right, and we will not deviate from the chosen path that you have set before us. And may our heart be resolute, steadfast. And may we persevere all the way to the end. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our sovereign Lord and Savior. Amen.